The seminar starts now. Welcome to The Seminar, a podcast from the Center for Cultural Analysis at Rutgers University. My name is Nicholas Glastonbury, and I'm broadcasting from New Brunswick, New Jersey. Since this is our inaugural episode, before we get into it, I want to share a bit about what the Center is and what we're going to be doing with the podcast. The Center for Cultural Analysis, or CCA, was established in 1986, and it serves as a hub for interdisciplinary scholarship at Rutgers University. Every year, the Center runs a research seminar that gathers faculty, advanced graduate students, postdoctoral researchers like myself, and distinguished visitors for a sustained conversation on a particular topic of interdisciplinary scholarly interest. Past topics have focused on the commons, the archive, photography, scale, and the everyday, among many others. This year, the seminar is centered on the voice with interest in related questions of sound, technology, and performance. Over the course of the year, the seminar will host visiting scholars and artists working in these fields, and we decided that there could be no better way to promote their work than with a podcast. Over the coming months, our episodes will feature these scholars and artists, as well as others engaged in interesting work at the nexus of voice, sound, technology, and performance. We're also thrilled to be partnering with Sounding Out, the Sound Studies blog, to launch this podcast. This show will serve as a guest season of the Sounding Out podcast over the next year. I'm really excited to kick off this podcast with the likes of Professor Nina Sun Eidsheim, who recently joined us for two days of discussion and debate at CCA. Nina Sun Eidsheim is one of the leading scholars in the field of voice and sound studies. Before she completed her PhD in critical studies and experimental practices at the University of California, San Diego, she first studied vocal performance, composition, and philosophy at the University of Agder in Norway and the Royal Academy of Music in Aarhus in Denmark. She also received an MFA in music at the California Institute of the Arts. She is currently professor of musicology at the Herb Alpert School of Music at UCLA, where she also launched the Practice-Based Experimental Epistemology Research Lab, an experimental research lab dedicated to decolonizing data, methodology, and analysis through creative practice. She is the author of two books, The first is Sensing Sound, Singing and Listening as Vibrational Practice, published by Duke University Press in 2015. And the second is The Race of Sound, The Micropolitics of Listening to Vocal Timbre and Vocality in African-American Popular Music, also from Duke University Press, published in 2019. Given her background, Eichheim's work is profoundly interdisciplinary in nature cutting across music theory and musicology to linguistics, critical race theory, gender studies, disability studies, digital humanities, and artificial intelligence, just to name a few. Her theoretical insights are original and provocative, locating the voice not in the speaker or singer, but in the listener. And hopefully that'll make more sense as you listen today. In what follows, Eichheim delves into her wide-ranging work, sharing her insights about the ethics and politics of voicing and music. Let's take a listen. So the first point I wanted to um, talk with you about is that I think voice, uh, or I have approached voice from a material point of view. And uh, I think now in 2023, that might not be 
something very noteworthy because it seems like a lot of people are doing that today and I'm very, very happy about that. But when I started um, my uh, sort of academic uh, career or work as a graduate student in 2001, um, it was in a music program and people, you know, ask you to give your elevator pitch or whatever. And they say, what do you work on? And they say, I work on voice. And then the second question would be, which composer? So it wasn't a given at that time, not that long ago, that voice was the material and sonorous uh, voice. And it also wasn't very present that actually the listener was part of that picture to mix metaphors here. Um, so I have been on this kind of journey to really, really shift the focus from voice, uh, not away from text, but to just say that the sonorous material voice is part of the text and that we, when we read a text, do we hear it, then the text is going to influence the way we hear voice, etc., etc., etc. So it's just to add some other dimensions into the dimensions that in, let's say, Western musicology had been thought about when we thought about voice or vocal music. Just to kind of, again, explain the kind of move I felt I had to make in music in order to, to think about what, what is happening when somebody is singing, um, is that what's interesting because it is, is material, material, it can react to pressures and situations in the same way as my body would react to being asked to do bodybuilding exercises every day. Believe it or not, I would become a bodybuilder. Maybe not like somebody would win prizes, but I would be a bodybuilder if I did, if it wasn't that diet, if I did those things every day. Any of us, all of us would become like that type of body. We are still the same body, but different, right? Um, if we were to uh, dance ballet every day or do ballet exercises every day and eat that diet, again, you know, we would become that type of body. And that is one of the major points I've tried to explain that the voice is exactly the same. You can't see that the voice is bulked up or this or that, but you can hear it, right? And um, so whatever is the movement that the voice or whatever is the sound that the voice is being asked to produce every day is, are the movements and the kind of um, behavior that feels natural for the voice. The whole body is connected to the voice. And you know what we, if you are singing upside down, for example, the whole, that's going to affect the voice. If you are singing with somebody, um, I don't know, like moving you, like you have a child that you are, um, you know, uh, kind of doing like a circle with, and they're, you know, they immediately because of this whole, the body is being activated. You, you can hear it. If you're sick, uh, your voice is going to change. Uh, what you got to eat when you were a child is going to affect your body. Um, what you're breathing every day is affecting your body. Um, and as <clears throat> I think uh, maybe you read, you read about underwater opera, the materiality that the body is uh, in direct contact with is going to affect, uh, it, it becomes part of the body in the sense that um, the body is configured in a different way if it's in primarily in, in air versus in water. So when we talk about the body and when we talk about the materiality of the voice and when we talk about the vocal fold, like the vocal apparatus and the vocal folds, it's in, in a, um, it's in a, this large network or this large con uh, connection, intermaterial connection all the time. And then we could switch it and think about listening in the same way, right? That listening is also 
um, very, uh, very physical and also interconnected. So what I was trying to think about then was this, how can something be the same but different? So the same like with our bodies being the same, but being realized in completely different ways and fully being that. You know, if I'm a ballet dancer, I'm fully a ballet dancer. And my whole body, everything I do is that. Even if I'm just drinking water, I'm drinking water as that ballet dancer body. Um, uh, so, so I had to kind of zoom in and, um, and add the zoom in. So, so I'm going to open another kind of line of thought here now. The other uh, problem I think we have in music, which connects to this, is that we don't have a way to think of, or um, uh, we think about musical works and we think about sounds and uh, sounds as things that we can know. So if I play you the Beatles, let it be. I think most of you would recognize it. And then we'll, I'll say, what is this? You say, the Beatles let it be. Um, so that's a musical work. We recognize it. It's the thing that it is. I can play you a pitch and maybe some of you have perfect pitch and you can say which pitch it is. Maybe somebody can figure it out. But it's supposed to be that thing. And maybe I sing it out of tune and then I'm not doing the thing that it's supposed to be. So that means like something is existing in the world that is supposed to be reproduced. The larger point is that in this kind of way of thinking about music, we think that there are things that we can know music, that we can know a pitch, that we can know a piece of music, that I can recognize the beginning, the middle, and the end of a note, of a chordal progression, of an opera. And that means that something is fixed. So I, I just went you know, to the physics of music, and I also tried to think about um, uh, really the feeling of singing and the feeling of hearing uh, voices. and. And it's all there uh, in music theory 101. You do learn about the physics of sound, but somehow it's just taught and then it's put aside. So then it's all about the notes. It's all about these kind of imaginary, knowable things. Um, and I just kind of put that back into the picture again and said, sound is, of course, energy that is transmitted through material. And the person who unlocked this for me was Juliana Snapper, who sang underwater in opera. I uh, think opera underwater. just to understand how different the same piece sounded underwater uh, versus over above water and the way that you cannot really hear it very well, right? If you she's singing underwater and you're standing above with your ears and your body in air, even though you're in very close distance, you cannot hear because it's very hard for the energy uh, of sound to move from water to air, actually. So like really thinking through all these different cases and thinking about the way that I'm training my voice led me then to just, instead of thinking about knowable sounds, to just say that what we actually are dealing with are, is, is uh, energy through a material matter. Um, and when 
I'm speaking now, you are of course your own speaker of my voice. I am vibrating in you, and that's the definition of you hearing me at this moment. Um, but, and then we can put all these barriers between us, or I can come and whisper into your ear, or I can talk into your skull, you know, and the same thing will be very, very different because the material relationship is going to be different. And then instead of thinking about the pitch or a knowable thing, I thought, you know, if we're just thinking about that, what we're doing is not making sounds, we're just practicing this vibrational uh, thing, you know, intermaterial vibrational uh, endeavor. And that instead of, again, thinking about knowable pitches or things or music uh, pieces, um, if I can just think about what we, um, in our common vocabulary, we think about as a sound, to just think about that as an intermaterial vibrational event. And that I have to go into that intermaterial vibrational event to know it. And it is, by definition, irre um, irrepeatable. Um, and my voice now in each of you is an irrepeatable event. Um, my voice is not happening in the same way in any of you. Of course, it's not shared. Yeah. But it is particular, right? And you could maybe not know English, or I can maybe shift the Binnsnakinosk, for example, and it would be very, very different, right? So we often, as vocalizers, think about uh, the sound is here and that we can kind of <laughs> move it around and, and be disconnected from it. But it's just, I guess, the example that I gave before that I am now vibrating inside you. You know, if you hear my words, I am vibrating inside you. So we are intermaterially connected, or I can connect to you intermaterially through my the energy that I choose to send out. And that energy is not necessarily uh, good or bad in itself. Um, it's so much about the references, how we, what we, under, how we make meaning of that, uh, that feeling. Um, but uh, you know that is going to make it good or bad for you, for instance. Um, but it is always a relationship, actually a material relationship is what I'm trying to say with the ethics, that we are touching each other. Once we add this dimension that is actual physical transmission and transduction inside you, I am, I am causing a physical transduction in you. The stakes just seem, uh, I think the stakes were always there. But it's just another way to explain how high the stakes are with music making and voice making. Also, this kind of um, very foundational assumption that we have that the voice is the person, the voice is the inner essence of the person. So that's why I should have uh, added, I wanted to have added that to the states, right. right? Because if this voice can do this and that, and I believe this person to be not, you know, to be very much outside that. What does that do to me? You know, what does that do to my understanding of the world? It destroys it, or it questions it. Um, so that's part of the ethics too. Like, what can we? What are we capable of hearing in others? Um, we're not capable of hearing very much in others. I mean, even just like in inter interpersonal relationships, oh, we ascribe so much to people's tone of voice, and we're not very generous. I mean, I'm not very generous. I will say, like, I'm just putting it on myself. It's easy to mishear, right? Just like. So, so that's like a huge part of the ethics too, that we get really, we, yeah, we hear many things. Uh, this question of ethics at the interpersonal level of voice and listening for Eidsheim has social and political ramifications as well. It takes on an ideological function, 
through which the voice that we hear conjures up for us a body that has been gendered, raced, classed, and so forth. She continues. Um, and to me, it's also very, very uh, important to stress that we have these, what I call informal pedagogies, you know, that happens every day when, when um, we are reacted to in the ways we are reacted to positively or negatively uh, because of our vocal usage. And then as children and as young people and as <laughs> older people, we modulate because we, want, we, are, in the so we are social beings. So, uh, and then of course, many of us do take um, very specific uh, lessons uh, in, in vocal performance, you know, whichever way is music or theater or, or public speaking. Uh, so then many of those lessons are being made explicit rather than in, in explicit. So, so the material uh, of the voice stem is reproducing um, in um, human flesh, in the technology that we create, in the language that we use about it, descriptions, and in the sensorium of everybody, we kind of start to create this uh, shared sensorium of like a right, wrong, uh, right voice and the wrong voice to use that kind of black, white, or contrasting um, terminology. We reproduce whatever, uh, whatever is being uh, made necessary, you know, whether it's in a kind of informal situation where we're just trying to move through the world, or whether it's in a very explicit, formal, pedagogical, uh, situation. Um, so the vocal folds that I showed you, the technology that we're using, um, vocal technology that we're using, the words that make sense to us at this moment to be using when describing voices, uh, and our tesorium is being shaped. So when you hear my voice, when I hear your voice, you know, it's that voice that has been already, always already uncultured. And nobody is ever non-encultured vocally. When we are born, we're born into knowing, we already know voices. We know the voice, if the person who carried us, if that person is speaking or singing or vocalizing during the pregnancy, that child who's just born will know that, uh, the language of that person. Uh, they don't know the meaning of the sounds, but they know that this is the sound pattern, vocal pattern that I know versus this is the sound pattern from another language that I don't know. Uh, another point in terms of like how early, how we are in voice through other voices is that uh, babies were born to uh, somebody who carries them who don't speak during the pregnancy. Um, the research shows that they don't know how to cry. Um, they, the quote is, they cry in a strange way. They can maybe make some sound, but they don't kind of know the sound of crying. Mm -hmm. So this very seems like a very basic thing. There is something that it has to be turned on, it seems like, by another human's voice. So vo voice is always already social. Voice is always already uncultured. And because voice is always already uncultured uh, 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 and social, uh, what we believe about the body is projected onto the voice. And of course, it changes over time. It's specific in a, in a place <laughs> within the culture. Um, there are many pockets within the culture that have specialized, um, specific uh, beliefs about the body, but that is projected onto the voice. So if I believe you to be a man, and if my understanding of a man is fill in the blank, and if I believe that a man's voice is fill in the blank, I'm going to project that onto that being that I think is a man. And 
Um, and if many people believe the same, and that's very often the case, then the, the forces of a society is going to try to make that voice into, you know, what that society believes is a man's voice. And then that person can, uh, most likely they will um, move into those vocal patterns and then that will feel natural. And I use that word, um, word very deliberately. Or they cannot feel that way about themselves and they may resist vocally. And then there will be repercussions. They were going to be feeling that. They're going to be reactions. And you know, we could take any of these categories from sounding like a professional, maybe wanting to lose one's regional accent. I hear that I observe that a lot here in American academia, that people speak much more close to each other than, for instance, in Norway, where I come from. There's much less regionalisms to my ear than I hear other places. So, so again, there, I, I think at any moment in time, one person's voice is going to be understood and body combined and who they are, their being, is going to be understood by more than one person. And that group of people then is going to inadvertently, you know, um, surround that voice with various pressures. And that voice gets to resist or not. And, and feel the effect of resisting or feeling the effect of not resisting. So what we believe about the world as well um, is going to be projected onto the voice. If we believe the vo world is a good place, it's going to be projected on the voice. If it um, is out to take us, it's going to be projected onto the voice. We're shared, we're together, it's going to project it, be projected onto the voice. So the voice has to carry a lot of information, a lot of a lot of collectively made up or agreed upon information. Listening then, whether it's listening to oneself, like as one speaks, and to others, that listening is projected onto the voice as well. Um, and we can really only hear what we hear. And that sounds like a, a, a sentence that doesn't work. But I, if I hear you as as somebody who is making a mistaken voice or a non-professional voice or as a illegible voice or as a really solid uh, professional voice, I hear that independent of what that voice actually is doing in the world. And what I hear is, of course, dependent on my own references. So one example I, I like to give is what happened when I landed in LA uh, was that, um, you know, my voice then was heard very much as Korean if people saw me. Um, and that's not something I, I, like I said, I don't know Korean. Um, and, uh, and then if people talked to me on the phone, they thought maybe it was French because they didn't know the Norwegian accent. Um, you know, so, you, so that is maybe the first time it's like this split um, where I, I started to think about how people listen. And I didn't have that phrase listening to listening then, but that's, you know, like a kind of movement to not just try to maneuver with my voice, but really say, wow, something happened here because nothing had happened. I don't think vocally, uh, but uh, everything had happened in terms of the listening to it. And of course, then people had in, in LA with the largest Korean population, concentration of Korean population outside of Korea itself, there were lots of references that people could, whether they knew it or not, or just thought they knew it, they had that kind of reference in their mind's ear. So that's how, kind of how that journey of trying to understand what that was started. And then the second point was, 
also then start to observe how specific um, African-American black voices were described in opera. Because if you are... <laughs> If you are a successful opera singer, you have gone through rigorous training and nobody who are trained in the United States have any closer uh, connection to all the operatic, uh, all the languages that are being sung in opera, you know, Italian, German, French, Russian, than anybody else. So why is it then that some bodies, and I say bodies very deliberately now, are being heard as black? It's very, very uh, in the uh, from the time that uh, black opera singers were um, had larger roles in opera. There'd been a, a lot of um, law connected to blackness in their timbre as well. It's not just that it's negative, but it's through the race, um, through the conception of the race of that person that that person is heard, and that to me was really. Um, I mean, on the one hand, I could understand why that was, because this is a racist society. But on the other hand, it was really baffling, because we know the really narrow eye that that person had to, you know, that person had to go through. Uh, and they had to just check top, 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 top on it, on every category, you know. So I started uh, looking into that. And I think that's, you know, one of those, um, some of these personal experiences that allowed me to um, to think about musicology and the way that voices are being treated, you know, as score and libretto, etc., that uh, maybe one wouldn't have thought so much about if one wasn't trained in the same way. Uh, you know, having gone through that training, it just did not make sense to me the way that those voices were being understood. Um, so that gave, that led me to do the work I ended up doing uh, in my yeah, my dissertation, basically. Um, and um, and I've been you know continuing to work on those questions for a long time, seeing then how the same discourse and kind of production of sound is being reproduced in technology and across the board. And I can allude to it, you know, that many of these black voices are celebrated and they're understood as beautiful operatic voices, many, but it has to be mentioned that they're different. So that that is very important to always. Uh, note, right? The difference. Even with the highest expertise, there is a difference. Mm. Yeah. So, um, and then there are also questions around the casting and things like that. But just if we don't even think about the casting, if we just think about like the brilliance that is being recognized um, in some um, black operatic voices, it's a difference that has to be always noted. Eidsheim writes, for instance, about Marian Anderson, the acclaimed black soprano. In her writing on Anderson, Eidsheim looks at how popular and legal discourse around the racialized voice developed over the late 19th and early 20th centuries. She writes that through these discourses, quote, voice is established as unambiguously representative of a stable body.
In time, these discourses came to shape the terms according to which black operatic voices could be heard or received. What then was the best way to pick apart these discourses and to understand the processes of racialization at play? Um, voice studies didn't exist. Like the thing that now you just, we just use that term voices. There was no voice studies. Uh, maybe sound studies was just something that like early 2000s that people started using that term. Um, so I, I felt like I didn't have the tools to really fully talk about this. So what I, um, I went to performance studies and what I said was that when people are, you know, doing the thing that we recognize um, because of our references, right? And because of the way that voices have been in culture, what we recognize as a white voice or what we recognize as a black voice is the performance of it. And I was moving the performance into, that's why I want to show you those images, into the voice. So I talk about um, vocal practice as an inner choreography. So in the same way as where, you know, a performance can be, I mean, you know, <laughs> the different ways of thinking about performance. But so the performance is here internally. And then when we are performing this inner choreography that is an operatic timbre or it is um, voicing or that voicing, um, we are actually engaging in movements of the vocal folds, of the torch, like the whole thing like that makes us breathe in one way or another, controls the airflow in one way or another, shapes the vocal tracks in one way or another, and, oh, and all these kinds of things. But so they're actual physical movements like, the, you know, like the muscle trainer and the ballet uh, dancer. And but we can we cannot see it, but we can hear it. Maybe I can also just say one thing just to kind of I don't know if it's clarification, um, but just to repeat maybe that that of course there are sonic patterns that we can recognize and they are produced, I think, by by this inner choreography that I was trying like, to explain. So, um, and those sonic patterns, it doesn't even have to be a person. Uh, it could be something like a genre, like a sonic, certain kind of sonic pattern is a, an operatic vocal timbre or blues or hip hop, or, you know, any kind of like timbre is one of the main dis um, signatures of a genre. Um, and we can recognize that. But it doesn't mean as is in the reception that it's the only thing that that can emit from that person, right? It means that it's something they they uh, either chose uh, consciously or were the only sonic option for them. Yeah, and often voices that we don't have an easy way of categorizing creates not that the easy way of categorizing is more correct, but just their voice, certain voices that create that and and get people can get obsessed with that and wanting to pin it down. Um, I don't know if you had, um, were able to read um, what I wrote about Jimmy Scott. So, you know, it's an, another example of how um, he was a person who was born with Kalman syndrome, but yeah, so he didn't go into puberty um, and people, and he was smaller of stature and he was very vocal about being a heterosexual black person. And, uh, but people, like you were saying, tried to ascribe all kinds of different um, 
identities to him, queer, trans, boy, girl, and he was misrepresented in the imagery and in the naming um, multiple times. So, and then in the very end, he was cast as death, you know, kind of like a non-human entity. So for him, it was very, very difficult um, to deal with that, like people's need to fix him. To make you cry. And this is actually like one of those also important links between uh, between like perform the performativity of voice and understanding the racialization of voice <clears throat> is that the whole sensorium is in tuned to ascribe multiple uh, meanings to a sound. So um, we can we 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 um, kind of automatically feel very good with certain voices. It's not just oh this is a it's not just an objective assessment. This is a beautiful voice or this is a capable voice. It's, a whole kind of feeling and that feeling has been entrained into us too um, and when we feel afraid of a voice that's a whole bo full body feeling that that person has inherited uh, that person didn't come up with it themselves uh, there are centuries of uh, sensoria that have been unloaded onto that person's nervous system so when they are reacting they are really feeling what they're feeling even if we may question that and unravel why it is that they feel what they feel. So it's a very hard thing to deconstruct or to think through because it feels so immediate. Uh, and it's hard to question things that feels immediate, right? It just feels like that's just the way it is and you just move on, right? So how do we begin undoing this sensorium anchored in histories of racialization and the reproduction of difference? How do we push against the supposed immediacy of voice? How do we hear above or beyond the registers that are always already gendering or racializing voices? A big part of the answer for Eidschheim requires moving away from the metaphors and the given terms we have for understanding voice, sound, and music. She wants to ask different questions of voice and sound as a means of unnaming the voices we hear and seeking new ways of knowing them. Practically speaking, Eidsheim accomplishes this by shifting her relationship with the work of the musicians and sound artists that she works with, including not just Juliana Snapper, whom you heard earlier, but also Warada Leo Smith and Camilla Norman. Moving away from how we know how to sense sound for Eidsheim is a journey that begins in language and in the relationality of language. Beginning there, we can hear and listen to the world and to one another in profoundly different ways. Be seeing you. Be because I, I am in this, this field of music. Uh, I'm concerned in music and how we language music and how we think about music. Um, we have to develop ways to think about this from, from music because I had to go far, you know, to put take another theory and move it in, which is totally legitimate, right? But but um, music theorists are probably not going to use that theory. And we need to have more people think about it from the, rep, you know, the, the thing that we're dealing with, the music that we're dealing with and the singers that we're dealing with. That we can both have recognizable sonic categories and not describe them through race or gender or the essence of the person. There are sonic categories that we are materially, vibrationally uh, performing. But we don't yet have really a way 
to talk about this. And that's why um, I am not a poet. <laughs> I think there were poets there yesterday. And poets, you know, can really like mind bend words and, and make them mean things they, they don't mean, they don't typically mean. Um, and I think most scholars are very good with words, but we're using words in kind of human, on a human level way, not like in a, in a poet level way. Um, so we have to kind of just take that into account. The Norwegian novelist Carlo Bucknevsko has observed that through language, a particular view of the world comes into being. If a particular world comes into being through language, isn't it our obligation to critically consider those and which worlds are being conjured and legitimized through language? And that's a really amazing place to begin or to be in, I think, to really ask, do I have the words rather than to come in and just apply these words? Instead of questions with which I seek to come to conclusions vis-a-vis -vis the artwork, I've tried to engage always emerging and relational who in the work, which is always itself teaching us new ways of doing the hearing, the making, and the explaining. And to allow the inquiry to be as wide and non-resolution oriented as possible. In the conclusion of Sensing Sound, I come to this point where I'm saying we need to find as many names of something as possible, to not uh, freeze it in one, to not just freeze it in A or you know, in tune, out of tune, to just really expand and understand that one thing. And where I am now trying to move a little bit closer is to, um, instead of naming this, uh, the things that are happening in the exhibit, what it means, uh, instead of uh, creating an explanation for what artworks and uh, music means, I'm trying to expand the space and my relationship to it. So, you know, we have been thinking about that we need to, understand the historical context of something, the, the gender context of something, etc., etc., etc. And this is very, very important scholarship, of course. But what I'm trying to do is just, as a good student of a new language, to try to understand myself in different prepositions. So any of you who have learned a new language know that prepositions are really difficult in different languages because they render the world, each language renders the world in a specific relational way, right? So um, I am using words, but I'm not using words to say these are the right words. I'm using words to move myself into different relationships. So for example, what I'm doing is, uh, and, and I want to ask you these questions. What I'm doing is to just um, use works of art or, or, or engage with works of art like a memoirments. Uh, remember I said in the beginning that Ramsey shows us that each work of art has all the theory and all the knowledge in itself. We don't need to bring in anything new. It will teach us. So I'm asking her to teach me. Uh, I'm spending time with these works. These were, these were some of the questions that came up. And then I use these questions. And you can use them to the work, but you can actually use them in other situations as well. Um, so I'm just going to ask these questions. There are going to be many questions, and some of them are going to kind of vibrate in you, and some are going to fill up. But I want you, normally I would ask you to write the response down, but I'm not going to ask you that. Just... Close your eyes if you want to, and just kind of respond. And what you would do, uh, my suggestion is that you choose an object or choose a question or choose something that you're working on that is more relevant. And imagine that you're asking yourself those, these questions in relationship to that one thing for all the questions. What do you see when you block out the big parts? What parts do you want to kiss? What part is closest to you? Is it camouflaging against anything? Describe where in your body you feel it first. 
What part feels dirtiest? What are the rough parts? We move far away into bird's eye view. How far do you need to be to not hear its pulse anymore? What smell lingers when you are away from it? From really far, what is its shape? What color is it viewed from the sky? And you move within into the belly of the beast. Where does it hold tension? What does the cellular structure feel like? How crowded does it feel? What are the fragile parts? What does it retain? What are the smallest construction blocks? What kind of light makes it through? What does it evacuate? Describe its internal flow. You move out to the top of it and sometimes you reach the edge. What imprint does it create? What's the first thing you see when you look at it from above? What part are you carrying yourself? What does it feel like sitting on it? How firmly planted are you in it? How deeply can you establish roots? How do you know where the top is? What parts will fall apart? Thank you. That was Nina Sun Eidsheim, and that's our show. Nina Sun Eidsheim is professor of musicology at UCLA. You can find out more about her work, including links to her books, at our website, seminarpod.org. The seminar is a co-production of CCA at Rutgers University and the Sounding Out blog. Episodes are produced, edited, and mixed by me, Nicholas Glastonbury. Our theme music is by Aldous Ignite. This episode featured music by Juliana Snapper, Marian Anderson, Jimmy Scott, and Billy Holiday. Special thanks to Colin Yeager, Maurice Wallace, Andrew Parker, Derek Barron, Jennifer Lynn Stover, and Aaron Trammell. And thanks once again to our inaugural guest, Nina Sun Eidsheim. Find us on the web at seminarpod.org. The Sounding Out blog is at soundstudiesblog.com, and the CCA is at cca.rutgers.edu. Thanks for listening to the seminar. Till next time.